Welcome to The Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our show is sponsored by Moo, which makes things that help you stand out and look great. In fact, it would be hard to make a better impression than giving out Moo business cards. If you've ever done that, you know what I'm talking about. To learn more, visit Moo.com, and you can see what I'm talking about if you can't imagine it. On each episode of The Observatory, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, Jessica, recently you and I gave a presentation about information design at the Yale School of Management. This was part of something called the Yale Geithner Challenge, Visualizing Financial Crises in the Modern World, uh, sponsored by the uh, uh, former Secretary Treasury Tim Geithner, uh, who challenged uh, students in Yale School Management's global network to come up with ways to visualize uh, the most recent financial crises. Uh, Why is this important? Why do MBAs need to know about information design? Who cares? Well, I think Geithner cares, and I think that's what was so great. Uh, He uh, somehow has decided that one of the most important things that is wrong with um, sort of epic scale financial crises is the fact that people don't understand what's going on and that part of the responsibility of somebody getting an MBA is to make the complex clear. Now, you could say that that's what graphic designers do, which is that we make the complex clear. And so there's a very parallel uh, argument to be made for the fact that this should be of interest to people who are listening to this podcast. Well, we understand how to make the complex clear in theory, but what graphic designers don't have is a ready-made reservoir of content that requires that kind of clarification. And I would say that most professions, medicine, economics, science, uh, they, they sort of if you're studying those things, you sort of uh, go through this process by which it gets progressively more complicated and progressively harder to understand. And I think the idea that MBAs, in order to do their work, uh, really need to sort of, as they're educating themselves about the complexity of modern finance, need to sort of at the same time master the tools of how to communicate the mechanics of those fields to people who don't share that same level of training. I think for Geithner, the fulcrum of his concern was the 2008 financial crisis, the subprime mortgage crisis. Um, And I should say that uh, he put together this jury that had him as the chair and a guy called Bob Schiller, who's a famous economist here at Yale, who's a Nobel Prize winning. Uh, There was someone from computer science and someone from, I think, macroeconomics and and me, the very unlikely me, which was a twofer because, of course, I can talk about visual narrative, but I really don't understand the 2008 financial crisis. Wait, wait. So how did you how did you feel sitting with these experts um, who obviously, I assume, completely understand the 2008 financial crisis and you just kind of know about uh, the mechanics of information design? Did you feel hopelessly outgunned? So hopelessly outgunned, and I think the word terrified comes to mind. And there's this marvelous picture of the three of us, you and me, Michael, uh, talking to Geithner, in which he's making some large hand gesture. And I look so terrified, and I think, you know, it's sort of this wonderful indication of the scale of my terror, (laughs) as evidenced by the former Secretary of the Treasury's outstretched arms, trying to try to encompass the the enormity of this this problem. Um, The thing I wanted to say, too, about, uh, about the Geithner challenge is that somewhere along the line, he became quite enamored 
Edward uh, Timothy Geithner, I think, or at least intrigued by uh, Edward Tufte, by looking at various examples of, of information design, information graphics. But somewhere along the line, he jumped ahead to uh, the idea that this group of kids, and he, and the, the initiative uh, went out to, to graduate students in business schools all over the world, and there were quite a few entries from China uh, and the United States, um, and, and I think a few uh, schools in Europe, but really quite a few in China. That was, the, that was the lion's share of them came from China. He decided that they had to make a video, and that the video had to be seven minutes long. And these students, by and large, availed themselves of a series of, of different kinds of software that are some kind of composite of a whiteboard and an animation software where you decide you're going to show that you know money changed hands. There's literally a piggy bank and a person handing off the piggy bank, and it moves over time, and you decide how long it takes to get from one end of the screen to the other. So these weren't just graphs and charts. This wasn't just static looking at how you actually use sort of geometric form to represent the physicality of finance. This was actually trying to get these kids to understand how to explain it in time, in time-based media. And so it was one notch more complicated than I think it needed to be. And hopefully, I think if they do it again, uh, they'll revisit this. Because it's, it's hard. It's hard for designers to do it. It's hard for information designers to do it. But, but certainly, as much as the time-based media gives you the opportunity to show the flow of information over a passage of time, it also represents countless choices that have to be made about size and shape and color and scale and representation. And, and these are really really hard things for anybody to do, let alone an MBA student who hasn't studied design. Jessica, do you th was it a mistake to make it seven-minute videos? I think seven-minute videos have, like, these requirements of, like, you know, that's like writing a good, you know, Saturday Night Live sketch. You sort of need a beginning, a middle, and an end. You need sort of, like, a little bit of a narrative Absolutely. No, I think that's a great – I think that's a great point. I don't think anybody talked to them about that at all, a narrative – you know, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I mean, they, you know – no, I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, it's a story. And I don't know how it came up with seven minutes. Even though information design is supposed to clarify things, people tend to enjoy looking at instances of information design where what you're seeing is very complex. We can picture sort of a, you know, Massimo Vignelli's, you know, uh, 70s subway map for Manhattan where everything was reconciled on a uh, uh, 45 and 90 degree grid uh, that took all the spaghetti, as he called it, and kind of made it all look really clear. But it still looked really complicated. And I think that uh, um, some of the best pieces of information design are actually quite simple, beguilingly simple. And I think that uh, people who have mastered complicated fields of study sometimes resist that kind of simplification, but it can be very useful to hold yourself to that standard. I'm, I'm reminded that the, the guys who invented Vine were asked how they came up with the idea that Vine should be six seconds. And they answered quite earnestly. And the, the answer was, well, we thought that five seconds wasn't long enough, but seven seconds was an eternity. <laughs> So, and that's exactly right. I, I, yeah, no, I, just, I think I, I, it's hard to imagine how that he came up with seven minutes, but but it's uh, even in seven minutes, it can be an eternity. I mean, it certainly felt like it for I'm sure some yeah, of those. Yeah, it can kids. be a long time. You know, you know what my favorite piece of information design is. Back in the uh, late '40s, uh, a bunch of scientists who had 
worked in different capacities on the Manhattan Project, formed a, a society just to kind of like study the, you know, the problems that would attend this new technology in the world. Um, so they, they had this magazine called the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists that they started putting out. And one of them was married to a uh, artist named Martel Langsdorf. And she, because I think she herself says she was the only artist that any of them knew, she was asked to decorate the cover of this magazine and put on the cover one quarter of a clock showing the hands of a clock set between 15 minutes to the hour to the top of the hour with the hour hand almost on midnight and the minute hand set at seven or eight or so. And somehow it just became this really interesting metaphor for our own annihilation at the hands of this uh, new technology that had been uncovered. And it, it start, what started out as a decoration of a cover ended up being this thing that now those same, the same organization, many, many years later, still uses as a way to kind of constantly rate and re-rate uh, their assessment of how, how dangerous conditions are in the world. And it's called colloquially the Doomsday Clock, and they have a uh, committee of scientists who are the advisory committee who meet once a year to decide what the threat is, not just from nuclear war, but now from bioterrorism, from global warming, from all these other things. And they all decide whether the hands of the clock should be moved closer to midnight or further uh, from midnight, you know, the ticking time bomb, you know, only a few minutes left. Everyone can relate to that. It comes right out of every action we've ever seen. And these guys have all kind of uh, agreed that, you know, regardless of the complexity of the science that's feeding into it, the complexity of the political uh, analyses that feeds into it, we're all going to sort of say, look, we should move the hands of the clock from four minutes to midnight to three minutes to midnight. And that's going to send a signal to the world. And every time they do this now, it's attended by a huge press conference. It makes all the major media. And where and it's does just it live? Who, who looks? World, at it. Is it on, is it online? Is it published in newspapers? Where do people see it? Oh, it's online. It? Yeah, if you, if, yeah, if you go, if you, well, I wrote a essay about it on Design Observer that will link uh, on the site. But if you go to their site, the very first thing you see is something that says, you know, bulletin, bulletin of the atomic scientists. It is three minutes to midnight. You know, and if you, you, you know, can go this to a may, place in their site where it shows. This may seem like from the sublime to the to the ridiculous, but when I was writing my book on the history of circular charts. I found no shortage of uh, volvels of, of circular wheel charts that were made during, uh, you know, from World War II all through the Cold War crisis, that were literally physical plastic series of concentric discs bound together by some kind of grommet that told you how much time you had to get out of a building after a nuclear blast. So, in other words, the blast goes off, mm, you're in the building, yeah. and you're going to go grab your wheel and say, "Oh, gee." Okay, we have three minutes. Like, like the idea that you would have the presence of mind to do that. It is, it is such a, an extraordinary example of analog and lunacy to me. And yet these things were, were really oh, copiously produced. Oh, and that's the best. That's one of my favorite parts of one of my favorite movies, Doctor Strangelove. Well, uh, exactly. And uh, uh, they're all, they're all like they're they're in like the war room, and uh, uh, the Peter Sellers character, Doctor Strangelove, who's considered the expert on surviving nuclear annihilation, is asked his assessment about when it will be, when it will be safe to come and come out uh, into the world after all the bombs drop. He takes out of his pocket something he evidently carries everywhere, which is one of those vovels, one of those little circular wheels, and says, you know, by my calculations, it should be exactly, you know, 76 years. Possibly uh, 100 years. You mean people could actually stay down there for 100 years? 
would not be difficult, my Fuhrer. Nuclear reactors could... <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. President. Nuclear reactors could provide power... This episode of Design Observer is sponsored by Moo, which helps you stand out and look great. Moo has a new stationary collection, Moo Letterpress, that combines classic craftsmanship and the modern print technology Moo is known for. You can see examples of Moo Letterpress at moo.com. So, Michael, we all love to talk about logos. The world loves logos. And I noticed, and you may have noticed, that Canada has a new logo for its uh, representing its 150th anniversary that came about as the result of a student competition, or at least the one they chose came about as the result of a student competition. It's a kind of play on the maple leaf with multiple colors, and it's no, pretty I, bad. I, I, every, some people think it's bad. I, I actually rather like it. I don't know whether I'm just um, an accepting, enthusiastic person, but I think it's energetic. and I think that's exactly <laughs> am, what you are. I, I am, and maybe it's an out- outcome of that. <laughs> I've often described <laughs> but, um, you that way. No, so, you know, I mean, this is, is this kid, bad? this kid, you know, there's some symbolism yeah. there. It's, well, yeah, I think it, I think it's a little complicated. And I think that, that logos that tend to prove the test of time or stand the test of time tend to be more reductive in their essential essence so that they can actually, you know, it's the, it's the old less is more argument, isn't it? I designed a very the reductive hand, logo lately, and everyone hated that one, too. So I'm not sure you, you can win one way or the other. If it's too reductive, they say my four-year-old could do it. If it's too complicated, they say that's confusing and makes me feel scared. You can't please everyone. People look at these new logos, and it just is uh, – um, they expect to have a snap judgment reaction to it, and n- not particularly nowadays where uh, everyone is a logo designer and everyone is sort of a critic of other logo designers. It's become sort of a dangerous business. Okay, but way. I'm going depersonal- to uh, depersonalize this for a minute. Okay, let's just look at this as a do. piece of graphic please design. Do. Okay, this is not about that it's a student. This is not about that it's a four-year-old. This is not about that it was that we're exploiting students to get them to work for free. I hope, which is a terrible idea. Um, that we shouldn't judge a logo quickly, just like magazine redesigns. People always hate them because people like to get used to things, I think. And, and so well, let's give it its due. But I would say that formally, it's very complicated. It's very colorful. And I think that logos that depend on their readability uh, uh, on a color palette, I think that that's a tricky thing to do because you can't assume that colors are always going to be reproduced the same way, that that you're going to have a budget that can re- reproduce all the colors. I mean, this thing has four, I think that there's orange diamonds that represent the provinces and something else represents the territories. I mean, it, I don't know, it just seems a little bit, a little bit much to me. Am I wrong? Um, I, th- I think, I th- no, I think you're right. One of the things I liked about it was that, um, uh, it's a leaf, and leaves do deciduous trees. At least have leaves that change colors, and so sort of the seasonal aspect of it kind of appealed to me a little bit. The fact that uh, um, as a drawing you could reduce it just to a simple outline and it's still red as a leaf. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure it's perfect. It may be just a. Uh, uh, a doomed exercise to try to commission someone to design a logo. I think that's a very a good point. Country. I think, I think that, you know, it would have been great to just see the maple leaf with a beautiful 150 on it instead of something that looks a little bit to me like it's uh, it's a kind of a, a slightly awkward angular NBC peacock, right? So it's, it's, you know, the rainbow itself has connotations. Maybe that was intentional, maybe not. Um, but I think the color, the reliance on color is a tricky thing. And uh, I, I think simpler is better. I'm reminded of... Uh partly by the fact that this is not re- this isn't in, technically this isn't a logo for Canada this is a logo to celebrate the 
150th anniversary of uh, of Canada's birth, uh, which will be celebrated in 2017. And I remember in 1976 uh, when we had the bicentennial logo for the United States government. Uh, that was designed by Bruce Blackburn, who was then a designer at uh, Schmerf and Geismar. What a simpler time it was then. I remember that logo <laughs> just came out and people just, you know, I remember anyone, my dad didn't say anything about it. No one he was said too busy. No one said, he was too busy selling Heidelbergs. Cutting the grass. He was concerned or, about other things. <laughs> yeah. He was too busy putting food on the table no, for me No, nobody had an opinion. You're so like. right. And so was everyone else. You know, there's, nobody had an opinion. It was just sort of, and, and, and that was like, man, I remember at the time uh, uh, being told that that, when I was in design school, I was told that that was like the most reproduced logo in history up till then. And I think uh, nowadays, you know, uh, this poor student, uh, Eric. Ariana Kuvin, 19 years old, from the University of Waterloo, we here, designed this, this logo, and the whole world is its audience, all kind of deciding whether they themselves could uh, do better or do worse. I detected in all this controversy, particularly when it came to professional designers uh, getting agitated about it, a little bit sort of a sense of uh, people feeling insecure and threatened, the idea that... Um, a task that one would hope would go to a card-carrying, qualified professional with a capital P doing a logo design was instead being outsourced as a student competition to anyone and everyone who might want to participate in it. And um, do you think there's any sense of kind of, you know, a professional guild trying to, you know, raise the gates around its territory to kind of make sure that unqualified people, students, civilians, uh, amateurs are all being kept out and so that, you know, I think that's an logo ex- needs to be designed, trust the professional. I think that's an excellent point. And I think the flip side is equally true, which is that back in the day when a designer got the call or a flag designer got the call or Betsy Ross got the call to sew the flag, <laughs> right? I mean, they, were, they may not have been certified to practice in an industry, but they weren't on Instagram. And so to me, the fact that everybody is on Instagram and on Facebook and on Flickr and on Twitter means that everybody is generating their own outsource. Everybody is, is um, publishing. Everybody's publishing themselves. Everybody's, yeah, yeah, and particularly yeah. pictorial publishing. I mean, I think Instagram more than anything, Pinterest. It, you know, people didn't used to express themselves in the taking of pictures with their cell phones. So over time, I think the composite sketch people have of themselves is I'm a maker, I'm a doer, I'm a visual person, I'm a creative thinker. Why can't I make a logo? So uh, you, know, yeah, exactly. you really can't separate yeah. the wheat from the chaff. And if you do try to separate the wheat from the chaff, you become seen, you're seen as elitist or the, as, uh, guild snobbery rears its ugly head. And maybe, you know, maybe a few rules aren't, aren't a bad thing. I don't know. Well, r- well, rules aren't a bad thing. And I, and, but I think there used to be this... Um, or standards. Uh, even if you... Yeah, well, there, there, was, there were standards, but I think in addition, it just used to be there was a degree of technical expertise that was required or even outright nerdiness that was required to care about these things. Uh, and, um, you know, you, you know, you couldn't have an opinion about typefaces if you didn't know the names of any typefaces. And back in the day, no one knew the names of any typefaces. And likewise, the same thing, uh, you know, people didn't even know what a logo was exactly. If, you know, if, if you tried to like engage someone in a conversation about a logo, 
30 years ago, you sort of, you couldn't count on the fact they'd even know what you were talking about, never mind have an opinion, never mind think you weren't insane for wanting to talk about it. Now, now everyone cares about everything, and it's become very, um, it's, you know, the kind of conversation we have about these things is very, very different now, I think. And as you say, the fact that everyone has access to their own kind of, uh, you know, their own soapbox, their own publishing medium, uh, everyone sort of in theory, can have a voice of equal volume. But I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, every, it's, it's a two-edged sword, isn't it? I mean, you want people to understand the vicissitudes of life as you see them, and you want your clients and your colleagues and your peers to, to appreciate the, the subtlety and the complexity of what it is we do. But too much information can be a bad thing, too. So I, I think we're, we're, it, can, it can be a bad thing. Where typefaces are concerned, it, it certainly can be tricky. And, you know, it's... it's uh, We've all had the experience, or maybe we haven't, but I certainly have had the experience of a client taking the thing you make for them and looking online for things that look like it and say, saying it's been done. I mean, so, so too much access and too much information can be a bad thing. But to come back to this the question of the logo, I think that uh, certainly anybody can design a logo, but should anybody design a logo is the question. Like, should there be some kind of know. professional so, standards? You know- you know, I, I have to admit, Jessica, the older I get, the more I've been practicing in this field, um, the more confused and ambivalent I've gotten about what expertise really is. Uh, some of the brand programs that I really admire, or I, I'd say that are almost universally admired, whether it's uh, Target or uh, Nike or Apple, are based on, at the center of them are logos that are like, you know, that indeed a four-year-old could do, that indeed if if you sort of presented them brand new to a client, they would say, are you kidding me? What else did you come up with? A dot with a circle around it? Mm -hmm. An apple with a bite out of it? A couple of curvy lines? What does that even mean? Mm -hmm. You know, Mm -hmm. I wanted a logo, not whatever this thing is, you know? And I think instead it's, um, you know, these things actually, you know, we put... um, we put so much pressure on them as graphic designers, at least, to sort of like come into the world fully formed, meaning everything they're ever going to mean to everyone in the world, that we sort of forget that just like anything else, a new thing is inherently uh, partly unformed. And part of its uh, period of of maturity is going to be the mutual understanding, the mutual experience we all bring to it. And so, um, I think it's uh, maturity and, and also the, the, the degree to which, uh, we are all of us so rewarded for impatience and for being impatient and for being yeah. so quick yeah, to no, judge, we want to get the right quick away. to post quick to get the, right. So the whole, the whole, very, the very nature of design and of designing a logo of refining a logo, refining a typeface, these things take time, publishing a book, designing something, making a poster, they take time. And so the classic way that design or art, even to, to a really great extent, sculpture, things that really were architecture really require an incredible investment of time. That is not the cultural uh, privilege. The, the sort of the, the, the thing we're rewarded for now is is really being being very quick up on the uptake. And so things I think have less value, and they certainly are less refined. And uh, I, I wonder if there's going to we're going to come to a moment where there's really going to be a crisis of of one or the other. It, it does feel like a, a binary kind of binary opposition to me. That either you're you're quick and you're posting and you're on Snapchat and you're tweeting and it's quick and it's fast and people get it. And you're the first to market. Or you're doing the thing that takes longer and you're seen as the slowpoke, but maybe there's great value in that. Well, and over 
time, uh, you know, both things have been rewarded. Have they not been? It's, uh, uh, you know, if you just if you just isolate art as a thing, there's artists who are just kind of titanic creators and are able to kind of reinvent themselves over and over again, uh, like Picasso. Then there's, uh, you know, artists who uh, just will kind of work in obscurity, kind of mining the same visual language or the same ideas over years and years, and only after their deaths is their work uh, discovered and seen to have value. And I think both of them are kind of uh, legitimate ways of doing it. I think what's interesting now, as you say, is that, uh, um, you know, the kind of capacity that people have to kind of do work very, very quickly sort of threatens to kind of crowd out everything else, you know, and that the reward you would get for working slowly and patiently just seems not just anachronistic, but almost completely irrelevant now to a certain degree. And one hopes think, it isn't. Yeah, and I just but, think that uh, one hopes it isn't. I think the cultural climate, even even in, in team-based creative um, enterprise, uh, you hear the term rapid prototyping, Right. And and it means you know you don't get too attached to something. It it doesn't get too precious. It's like it's like improvis improvisational theater in a way, right? But on the other hand, the emphasis on rapid, I think, comes out of this culture of impatience that gets us in trouble. And I sometimes feel that designers and design thinking and design making is is stuck somewhere not quite on in either camp because you want to keep things moving and keep things fluid and keep things open and develop them with an eye to what fails and what succeeds. But sometimes that the speed with which we uh, really reinforce our our value system so much around the notion of acceleration, I think, kind of bites us in the in the. Uh, in a way that it, it just sort of circumvents the very thing that we're supposed to be doing, which is making something great and unusual and inventive and, and particular to its, its, its moment in time. Um, so I think that it, it, this logo thing, for me, comes back to that. So, you, you know, everyone's judging it, to your point, Michael, very quickly. Uh, we haven't lived with it. We're not looking at it over time. And maybe the best way to judge a logo is after it's been out for a year or two. Or 150, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the case yeah. of Canada. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Give it some time. See how it looks after yeah. we'll a talk to, you, talk to you in 150 exactly. years, Michael. Exactly we'll talk about right. it then. Exactly right. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed today, including the logo for Canada's 150th anniversary. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. Let us know what you thought of the show and if there's something you want to hear us talk about next time. You can subscribe to the Observatory on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or however you take your podcasts. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. If you're not listening already, please tune into our other podcast, The Fantastic Design Matters with the fantastic Debbie Millman. A big thank you to Moo for sponsoring this episode. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. Thanks, Michael. Talk to you soon. <laughs>